listening to Keeping It Real with Janine, your guide to living an authentic, healthy life, a podcast about living with more joy, energy, and flow. We strive to help you create a healthier life from a wide variety of perspectives. We want you to glean some useful nuggets from each episode to help you be more in the flow with ease, joy, and purpose. So if you feel your life could be more fulfilling, healthy, and joyful, you're in the right place. I am talking with Paul O'Brien today. Paul O'Brien is an old friend. How are you, Paul? I am great, thanks. It's great to reconnect with you. Paul is a sought-after speaker, and I was just reading his blurb on the internet, Raconteur, which I thoroughly agree with. He's a great guy to hang around and, and, uh, and talk with. He's a bright, brilliant person, um, lots of knowledge. Well, let's just get right into your story, Paul, because that's, I really like the human interest side of, of how a person became successful and, and what, you know, what you've had to do to overcome challenges. Many of you may have checked out his website, tarot.com. Tarot.com was the website that I used to run when I was an entrepreneur, and it eventually became the world's largest astrology website, uh, which was AOL Horoscopes at the time. This was in the early 2000s. But Tarot.com no longer represents what I do. I, I sold it eight years ago, and it's a great story. But I just want you to know it's changed a lot since I ran it, and it's become highly commercialized, and it doesn't really represent um what it was that I created. But yes, you're right. I was the founder and CEO of tarot.com, which included tarot, uh, I Ching, um, and astrology and numerology. And now since I sold it, I started a, a nonprofit. And that's basically what I'm doing now is writing books and, um, and, and, uh, and, and I have my own radio show. Awesome. Yeah. You've had your radio show for about what, 30 years, haven't you? I don't like to. I don't like to be that specific because it dates me age <laughs> and it makes me feel it makes me feel very old. But yeah, actually I have. Um, you know, since I was in my teens. No, just kidding. <laughs> yeah, and it's on it's on KBOO uh radio in Portland, Oregon, and it's broadcast across Oregon and southern Washington, but it's also a podcast. So I'm like you. I have a podcast and um, it, it, which comes through my website, which is divination.com, and also through iTunes. It's called Pathways. Great. So that's the name of my radio show. Okay. So, yes, our listeners can check you out. Awesome. So well, let's start with how did you decide to do uh, come up with the idea for tarot.com? What, what was your inspiration? Because at the time, what I, I forget, was it in the 80s, I think, when you that's started right. this? It was in the late okay. it was in the. 80s. So you were you were a lot like me, um, uh, ahead of your time, because I started my uh, aromatherapy company in the 80s, and nobody even knew what the word aromatherapy was at the time. Right, right. I was at least 10 years ahead of my time. Well, the whole story, you know, I, I'm going to go back to the very beginning, because in my book, my latest book is called Great Decisions, Perfect Timing. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I tell this whole story. It has an autobiographical aspect to the book. But it's primarily about how to cultivate intuitive intelligence 
and make strategic decisions and improve your timing. And so I've kind of used my story as illustrative of many of the things I write about in the book. And one of the things I, I write about in the book are the stages of life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so many people have have defined uh, the stages of life or the passages of life, it's sometimes called. And there's a lot of different ways of divvying it up. But I went with the uh, astrological uh, paradigm, is the um, cycle of Saturn. So Saturn has an orbit of 29 and a half years, approximately. Mm-hmm. And so when you're 29 and a half, that's known as your Saturn return. Anybody who knows anything about astrology has heard that phrase. And so because that's considered a very significant marker, that's when Saturn comes back to where it was uh, astrologically or where it was in the sky the moment you were born. And right. so Saturn's all about karma and responsibilities and 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 um, duty and that kind of thing. Um, and so uh, it, I divide life up into Saturn cycles. So stage one of life is until your first Saturn return. Um, okay. and I call that the student stage. Okay, and that's uh, and that's uh, up till twenty nine, right? Right. Okay. And so and so that's when you. Um, learn who you are, what you're good at, and what you love to do. And how do you learn that? Well, according to my recommendation, it's by trying things. It's by experimenting. It's by, you know, jumping around and trying different things. Job hopping is, uh, I'm all for it. Dating, mm-hmm. a lot, dating a lot of people, I'm all for it. I'm, I really um, kind of, uh, I, I'm kind of against making lifetime commitments before you're 29. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, there's a lot of exceptions to that. But anyway, that's my definition of stage one. Okay, so that sounds to me like it's learning about what you want and what you don't want. Yeah, that's right. Okay. With a with a with a focus on what you want, mm-hmm. which is based on which is based on what you uh, discovered uh, during stage one that fascinates you. Mm. And then stage stage two, very briefly, is the builder provider stage. That's when you take that uh, skill or, or, or talent that you discovered in stage one and you develop mastery around it and you build something. Now, whether that something is a family or a business or, you know, a nonprofit or whatever, or a cause of some sort, doesn't really matter. It's whatever it's based. But the thing that matters is that it's based on something that's, um, that fascinated you, something that you learned about yourself or discovered about yourself. And then stage three, which I'm in now, is the uh, patron stage. And that's where, you know, we support future generations and, and we and we, we are uh, creating a legacy in terms of what we're teaching or writing or, or uh, as a philanthropist. Um, that's stage three. Mm-hmm. So going back, so with that, and when I was in stage one, when I was 19 years old, I was at the UC Berkeley, I was introduced, uh, I met this, uh, I was flirting with this uh, pretty girl, <laughs> pretty girl on campus. And why she, am I not surprised? <laughs> and she wanted um, to show me this, uh, this ancient book, Oracle system called the I Ching that I had never heard of and show it to me and how it worked and or she was willing to. And so I, I was you know, marginally curious. I sort of assumed it was some kind of flaky um, fortune-telling game or something. But I, I wanted to hang out with her, so uh, <laughs> I let her. I let her show it to me, and she encouraged me to um, write down some something that was on my mind or some question I had. 
And I scribbled something down that didn't mean anything to me. And, you know, being a typical 19-year-old smart aleck, you know, um, in those days, you know, when I was 19-year-old males often think that being a smart aleck is the way to girls. I, I don't agree with that anymore, but um, that's where I was at then. And so I was making fun of it, really. But I was kind of just being a smart ass. And so uh, I, I made wrote down a question I didn't care about. I cast these coins. And I'm being all smirky and everything. And so the I Ching gives me the reading, which is hexagram number four. There's 64 of these hexagrams, which are uh, archetypes. Mm -hmm. So it gives me the fourth archetype in the series. And the title of it is Youthful Folly. <laughs> and it describes a student who lacks respect for the teacher. Go figure. And I thought, my God. I'm making fun of it. It's not. It's making fun of me. <laughs> so I said to this. I said to this girl. I said, "Hey, let me try that again." Now this time, I was no more invested in my question than I was the first time, but I had a different attitude. And my attitude this time was, "Oh, I'm testing this thing. Yeah, I'm going to test this and see what happens." So I cast it again, and it came back with a reading that said, "Questioning the sincerity of the seeker." And I thought, my God, it's testing me. <laughs> and so that's when I had this cathartic realization. Wow, this is an energetic mirror. This thing is not going to take any shit from me. It's going to basically reflect um, my energy back to me. And it's like a mirror. And so then that's interested and developed a personal fascination with the I Ching. And so starting at age 20, I was studying it. I got all the different versions of it. I really immersed myself in learning about it. And I also proceeded to use it as a tool in my life whenever I had a problem that logic can't handle. Mm -hmm. So, now, Paul, where where do you think – I mean, you've had so much experience with the I Ching. What's your perspective on where the answers come from? I mean, is it coming from your higher self, the universe, your unconscious? I, I have always wondered about that with, like, tarot cards well, and, and – and I would say I would say all of the above because I and actually I wrote a book called Divination Sacred Tools for Reading the Mind of God that came much later. I didn't write any books until after I was a successful entrepreneur and I had company. That basically the, my answer to that question, Janine, is patient systems, um, whether it's the I Ching or tarot cards or astrology or numerology. Any of these systems that help you, they're basically what they are, is intuitive decision-making aids. I don't think they give you the answer. I think what they do is they stimulate, they use an archetype. You, you know, you use some synchronistic process like casting coins mm -hmm. or picking cards. Mm -hmm. And um, and that, each one of those cards is an archetype. There's 78 archetypes in Tarot. There's 64 archetypes in the I Ching. Astrology's got, you know, 12 signs, 12 houses. It's got a ton of archetypes. Mm -hmm. So you basically, you pick some cards, you cast some coins, and an archetype turns up. And that archetype is related to your insides because we have all of the archetypes inside of us. That's how what archetypes mean. It's like there's, the, you know, the I Ching divides the human condition into 64 states. Tarot divides it into 70. And then there's a lot of permutations and stuff. Mm -hmm. So um, the theory is that the archetype that comes up for you when you are meditating or contemplating or concentrating on some issue of concern is exactly the archetype that you 
can benefit from looking at right now. And so what that does is it stimulates your intuition. Mm-hmm. And that's that's what I say these tools do. Um, they stimulate your intuition to help you think outside the box around problems that logic can't handle. Mm-hmm. That's so a great I, definition. I like that. So it's not about giving you the answers. You get the answers by by being stimulated by the text or the images and then you, but you have to read between the lines because the I Ching reading is not going to tell you exactly what to do. It's not going to tell you exactly the way things are going to turn out, but it's going to give you, it's going to sort of like stimulate your intuition so that you come up with a third option. Usually we think in terms of black and white, you know, we're going you know, to fight or, 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 or flight or right. freeze. Right. But there's always more, there's always more to, two solutions to any problem and we often can never see the third or fourth possible solutions because we're so black and white right right you know right and wrong and all that so that's that's the way i look at it and uh it just helps you make better decisions which is why ultimately after having written a western version of the i ching and that's kind of a little further down my story because i was fascinated by the i ching my adult life i used it for Lot of problems that logic can't handle. If I had a problem that logic can handle, I didn't use the I Ching. I didn't use tarot cards. Right. I just used logic. You know, logic's a good tool, but it can't handle issues like relationships and timing and negotiation strategies, you know, things like that, that logic can't handle. So that's when I would use each. The other, uh, sorry, the, the other point that I, I want to make is besides stimulating your intuition is that it's just, it's more information. From yes. my perspective, if you can't make a decision, if you're having trouble making a decision, you need more information. And this is one way to get more information. Right. And that information is a reflection of your insides. It's a reflection of some energetic configuration that is potentially within you. Mm-hmm. So you're really getting your answers from within yourself. Now, you could call that the unconscious. You could call that the mind of God. You could call it you could look at it, you know, any number of ways. But it's not an external answer that's coming to you. It's not like this outside agency. It's basically stimulating what's already inside of you. I mean, we know everything. Right. It's just that we don't know that we know it. We don't, <laughs> we don't remember all the things that we know. And we have a hard time accessing it. <laughs> okay, so now to finish the story, when I was in stage one, there's another thing that I was fascinated by, and that was software. And I had this friend who worked at a computer center in Eugene, Oregon. It was nonprofit. And it was a gigantic computer. It would take up, you know, half this room <laughs> and, you know, have huge mag tapes. But it had one tiny little terminal, which was the size of an oscilloscope. And my friend had wired up these, these um, uh, joysticks and got this software from MIT that basically turned this gigantic machine into a, a game machine. And so we would go there late at night and we'd smoke pot and we'd, we'd commandeer <laughs> this $150,000 computer, which was called a mini computer. And like I said, it was huge and it had less power than my iPhone has now. But in any case, I was just fascinated by the concept of software. You know, here's this, somebody wrote some code that makes it possible for my friend and I to have this immersive experience uh, playing a game. Now, I'm not really a gamer. I've never been much of a gamer. Um but I was just so blown away by what that indicated uh, with the potential of that. You know, I mm. thought, wow, I could see how someday people could use this to develop multi, you know, to develop multimedia, develop educational or even spiritual uh, experiences that are facilitated 
by a, an interactive computer system. So I had visions of multimedia in 1973, wow. which was 20 years before each before CD-ROMs even existed. So in 1988, uh, and I got into the software business, which I was so fascinated by, I got into it as a secretary because I could type. Mm -hmm. So I started out my career in software um, as a secretary. I was I can I remember I was making six hundred sixty dollars a month. Wow! <laughs> when I started, and then I just kind of leapfrogged my way up the um, the I'm a marketing specialist, you know, um, and and I ended up becoming an executive in a high tech firm. And in 1988, I found myself having problems that logic can't handle, that were based uh, that were rooted in the office politics of this very dysfunctional organization and I actually was starting to take the I Ching to work. Oh wow. And then it occurred to me, well, I sure wish I could do this on my Macintosh. We were an early Macintosh uh networking company in nineteen eighty eight and mm -hmm. I was the vice I was the vice president of the company. And and so that was a big light bulb went off and I go, Oh my God, that would be so cool. And all of those fantasies of multimedia that I'd had twenty years or fifteen years earlier and in my fascination with the I Ching. And so there was an intersection between two things I was fascinated by. And what I did was I took my entire life savings and I hired a programmer and an artist from outside the company and created one of the first multimedia titles ever. It was on multiple floppy disks because there were no CD-ROMs. And it was called Synchronicity, which was the very first divination software. I didn't know it. I didn't know it was the first divination software. I didn't know it was the first multimedia software. But... It was just driven because I had this fascination that was so overpowering. I spent my entire life savings, which was about 50 grand, to make a prototype and to sort of, you know, create a product. But in the process, I had to write my own version of the I Ching. That's how I became an author. And I quit my job. And this is what's great about the story of my success. What's remarkable about it is that I left an executive position where I was making a lot of money and had a very promising career ahead of me. But I wanted to do something meaningful. I chose meaning over money. Mm -hmm. and, and even I could never imagine that I Ching software was going to be a big hit. And it never was. It was the least remunerative thing I ever did. But it was the soul of the company that I created because then we added do-it-yourself tarot on top of that, you know, like eight years later. And then we added astrology and I got the franchise with AOL. And it became the largest astrology website in the world, as well as the largest Tarot and I Ching website. And we started, it started, I started to be pursued for acquisition, you know, in 2006. And I thought, no, no, I'm not interested. You know, I'm finally making money after 13 years <laughs> of not paying myself half the time and barely keeping my mortgage together and barely making payroll. All of a sudden, with that AOL Horoscopes uh, franchise, I, we were making, I was making seven figures. Oh my God. Who could have, who would have ever thought that? I had no, no exit, I had no exit strategy. I was not planning on selling it, but then we started to be pursued and Disney came up here to buy us and Barnes and Noble wanted to buy it. And I just told him, Oh, well, thank you very much. But, you know, but then I started to think, well, what would I do if I got my number, which means I don't have to, um, earn a living in, in any conventional way. Um, and I thought, well, I would start a nonprofit. I would write more books. Uh, I would extend the reach of my radio show and podcast. And, and I'd do a lot more traveling. 
And so in 2007, I sold the company for millions of dollars. And it's just basically, and now I, I run a nonprofit. Um, but it's basically the story of, of a person who chose meaning over money. It's kind of one of those do what you love stories. And mm -hmm. so I wrote, I wrote it up in the book, Great Decisions, Perfect Timing, in a way that helps other people um, find what fascinates them and, 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 and um, you know, maybe inspire people to um to go for it yeah well you know i i mean we're all facing choices every day uh we'll get into talking about beliefs i love i love your uh term belief engineering because i think that's that's a, a great way to describe beliefs and how they they inform our lives but the with the choices, you had to make choices throughout this whole process. I know you were bankrupt. You went bankrupt, what, twice? I so lost everything. I lost everything twice. I never personally filed for bankruptcy, but the company went bankrupt. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you had tough choices to make to keep going. Um, and I was reading in your book, um, well, let's see, what, what did I write down? Facing choices that are mutually exclusive. So for you... What are the parameters um, for you of making tough choices? What it's obviously not financial. Well, it, I think financial should enter into it. You know, it's like that's what that whole my whole latest book is about: great decisions and perfect timing. Perfect timing is a decision. So you, you you're using the word choices. I'd say decisions. I'd say decision making is the highest uh, leverage human skill. Mm -hmm. You know, in, in other words, the quality of our success and happiness in life is directly related to the quality of the decisions or choices that we make. Absolutely. And so the whole book is about how to make better decisions. And there's a chapter in there on divination, but it does and the I Ching, but it doesn't depend on that. The book doesn't hinge on that. There's also a chapter in there on logic. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, logic is a really good filter, even if it can't finally make the decision. Like a visionary decision is what I call it. Yes. A, yes. A Let's get into that. A strategic personal decision, I call it visionary decision-making, mm -hmm. it involves uh, logic and intuition working together, but it's primarily led by intuition. And so the subtitle of the book is Cultivating Intuitive Intelligence because that's the hardest thing, that's the hardest thing to do. You know, we have a hard time accessing intuition when we need it most. Mm-hmm. The reason is, you know, and I have this uh, rule in there called O'Brien's Law. O'Brien's <laughs> Law stipulates um, the stronger the feeling, the stronger the emotion, the less trustworthy it is as a criterion for decision making. Now, that, I, that sounds a little different from what I've often heard. Can you delve into that I know, a little it's bit? Like, it's, it's actually totally counterintuitive. Most people think that's... Um, how you should make decisions is basically whatever you have the strongest feelings about. And my argument is that intuition doesn't show up as a strong feeling. Intuition is a still quiet voice. It's a quiet voice. It shows up as a gut feeling, but it's not like uh, overwhelmingly strong, like something that's um, the strongest feelings are basically have a lot of ego behind it. And they're usually driven by fear or mm -hmm. greed or jealousy you know, the strongest feelings are not trustworthy. Uh, they, they're good. I mean, it's, it's, they're, they, they offer you information about where you're at or about what your issues might be or what your challenges might be. But you should never make a decision when, you know, you feel 
um, on the basis of a strong feeling. In other words, it's a lot better to calm down and do some meditating. You know, there's all these techniques in the book on how you can use mindfulness to open up uh, the intuitive sense. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the strong feelings overwhelm the intuitive sense. When, when you're under the influence of strong feelings, your intuition is not operative. You can't even notice it because it's drowned out by all the noise in the system not only from your strong feelings, but from all the distractions in life, you know, we're bombarded on all fronts these days. Um, and we're, we're, we're highly distracted. And within and, and intuition, is, you know, it's sort of like, you know, you're, you're sharing some kind of Wi-Fi, some wireless router with a bunch of other people. And there's, you know, and, and there's a, a few people who are downloading huge videos or something. Um, you can't get you can't get enough bandwidth. And you're just trying to get this delicate little, or like a ham radio. Remember the ham radio? Oh, yes. Yep. My dad had you know, one. You're trying to find this very faint signal from so far away, but it's drowned out by all the static and the stronger signals. Well, so if you think of the five senses as antenna, like vision and hearing, et cetera, these are huge antennas sticking out of the brain, and they're, they're, they're downloading gobs of information all the time most for most of us mm -hmm. and and the, if you think of the intuition as a as a little sixth antenna you know you got the five fingers the five senses let's say there's a little tiny little finger on the end that's a very that that's calibrated to pick up a, it's a small antenna and it picks up a very fine signal which is easily drowned out by all the noise and then when you bring in strong emotions on top of it that's like putting this containment dome over it is, you know, I say, and I really mean this, that having a clear intuitive insight is almost a minor miracle for people these days. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, you know, when you need your intuition the most is when it's hardest to access because of all of the noise and the emotional perturbation that's going on. And so this book is about how do you, how can you create an opening so that you can actually get input information mm -hmm. from from the intuition um and but that doesn't mean you shouldn't use logic too. you use logic to rule out all kinds of um of bad choices and uh there's a whole chapter on uh, a, a logic technique that i teach which is different than pros and cons pros and cons is not the best way to go uh-huh uh -huh. because let's say let's say you have four choices and you do the pros and cons the cons of one are going to be like a pro of another one. And the problem with considering the cons is um, they're much more you're, – you're, we have much bigger emotional reaction to fear than anything else. Right. And so, you know, the power of negativity, um, the cons outweigh the pros even when they shouldn't. So I have this system called weighted pros that I teach in that chapter, which is – you know, you add up the, the value of the pros of each choice and you ignore all the cons altogether and you just go with the one with the highest value or maybe, you know, and then you bring your intuition into the mix. It's, it's not an exact formula. You can't give an exact formula for intuition, um, but you can open the you, you can open it. You, you can get you can get access to it. And that's the that's really the best you can do is you can get your ego out of the way so that you can actually hear. I don't know, you could call it the voice of God or the voice of inspiration or however you want to characterize it, it doesn't really matter. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's the visionary decision making is it's led by intuition, but it's supported by logic 
And that's what the whole book is about. And our beliefs get in the way too, but that we haven't got to that yet. Right. So I have a question. How, what would you say to someone? Like I've known people who just feel it's all about logic. Intuition has no place. Um, everything needs to be logical. How, what would you say to someone who's, who feels that intuition isn't important? I mean, for me, I find my intuition is, generally 99% right on and I need to I need to pay attention to it and it's really that's I guess that's why I'm doing the podcast is because I followed my intuition but some people just they don't they don't trust their intuition or they don't feel it's valuable right right well they yeah I mean we have glorified logic in the west since you know the renaissance and, um, you know, science, uh, the scientific method, the scientific point of view um, basically relies on logic. And, and that's a really good tool. Um, logic is very good for taking things apart and answering the question, what are things made of? Mm-hmm. But it's it's not. And then we can reengineer things and we can do different combinations and put them back together and invent stuff. But it's terrible for answering a question like, what kinds of things go together in time? If, when it comes to timing questions, logic is, is useless. Mm-hmm. So there, I would say to somebody like that, say logic's great. And, you know, there's the, the things that it can handle um, are, you know, are, you know, important. It's a good, good thing to use logic. But um, there's so many things that logic can't handle. Um, you know, relationships is like the most obvious universal <laughs> example, you know. Right. That's about the most illogical thing there is. Yeah. I mean, how you anything that, that where feelings are uh, front and center, you know, sort of like, you know, the kind of question logic can't handle is, you know, how do I relate to my partner who hasn't spoken to me for a week? Mm-hmm. Logic's mm-hmm. not going to, you know, logic might say, well, go get a, go to a counselor, but that doesn't really answer the question. So, um there's a lot of problems that logic can't handle. And so then there's a lot of theories on intuition, too. And, you know, it's like you can think of intuition as a higher form of logic in the sense that intuition is about pattern recognition on a much, much broader scale uh, than logic can handle. I mean, there's we we don't know shit. I mean, our our knowledge, even in science, is so limited. Mm-hmm. And for anybody and for anybody to think that logic is going to provide all the answers they need, they're going to live a very limited life, and they're going to deny themselves a lot of experiences because they're going to, you know, it's the typical scientific attitude is, well, if lo- if we can't measure it, it, then it must not matter. Right. That's that's not true. That's not even close to being true. That's a very sterile point of view. So now I look at intuition as, as, as pattern recognition and having a sense of patterns that are beyond our ability to measure or even map out entirely. Um, so that's what timing. Timing is 100% intuition. Timing is a decision. You know, there's two, there's two questions you have to answer when you're faced with a decision point or a choice point. And one of them is, what is the best next move I could make. It's sort of like playing chess. Mm -hmm. And the second question is, and when should I make it? You know, when should, when should I pull the trigger? That's the timing question. The first question, what is the best next move? Logic can give you a lot of help with that. But, um, the second question, when should I pull the trigger? Logic is useless. 
that's the timing question. So if you want to develop good timing, you really need to develop your intuition. And if you improve your intuition by, you know, discovering it and getting access to it, um, then your timing is automatically going to improve. And timing is so important. And timing's related to synchronicity and every and how everything is synchronous in our lives. And exactly, it's all yeah. Wow. Um, so how? Okay, so we're talking about the importance of intuition. How does somebody determine whether a decision is based on their intuition or based on their ego? Well, you know. I run a test against, um, I mean, there's nothing wrong with ego. I mean, ego is like a very good lieutenant. You know, its job is to uh, make sure that you're safe. It's a job, its mm-hmm. job, you know, it, it's, its job is to take care of business in the dualistic realm, but it's a terrible general. It's a good lieutenant, but not a, but not, it shouldn't be, um, uh, leading, uh, your life, because when you become egocentric and then, you know, because what it's doing is it's dividing everything up. Like I said, it's very good at analyzing things and taking things apart. And so your ego is basically your sense of yourself as a separate being. So when you're operating in the dualistic realm, in the realm where you've got self and other or a subject, which is you and object, you know, when you're dealing in the world where you are performing or acting as an as an individuated agent, you know, that's the that's where the ego that's what the ego is about. But when you start to look at things more holistically, um, you know, and in terms of relationships and in terms of love um, and in terms of harmony and in terms of like, you know, healing as in healing the planet, as in being in tune with nature, ego can't do that, you know, because that takes you beyond the ego, you have to look at a much bigger picture. So I always have this test, and I, I, I talk about this in the latest book too. It's like I always ask myself the question, um, is this thing that I think would be good for me or this thing that I want, is it good for everybody? Mm-hmm. Because if it's not good for all beings, if it's not good holistically, then it's not good for me because logic, even logic tells me this. I mean, I am interconnected with everything. Right. And, and you are everything. Yeah. We are all one. We are all interrelated. So if something is bad for somebody else, it's bad for me um, right. because, you know, we, we can't escape our connectivity. We can't ex- escape our interrelationships with everything. So I always do that question. It's like, is there anybody that this would harm in any way? That's that's a filtering question that I have. I think that's a great question. And is it something that's going to help me grow? Or is it going to help me contract into some habitual, you know, comfort zone? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's another question. Because the ego, you know, wants you to, wants to gratify the senses. It wants to, you know, wants instant gratification. It 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 basically doesn't really care about anybody else. It's basically looking out for you. And like as, I said, it, as it should. Yeah, there's value in that. You know, it's not like you want to get rid of your ego. Well, uh, that's something I hear a lot, you know, is that getting rid of the ego. And I'm like, no, the ego's there for a reason. It just needs to be in its place. Exactly. Exactly. It needs to be in service to higher self 
not the other way around. Ah, awesome. I like the way that you said that. Right. So let's talk about perfect timing and how that fits in and, and, and synchronicity. Cause I, I think from my perspective, there are no quote unquote co- coincidences that everything is a product of synchronicity and of flow, if you want to call it that. Right. Uh huh. Yeah. Well, synchronicity is really the definition of perfect timing. You know, when I called the book Great Decisions, Perfect Timing, I knew people were going to say, Oh, get off it. I mean, nobody has perfect timing. And, you know, the, the, and, and there's truth in that, but it was kind of a jazzy title, but mm-hmm. actually everybody has perfect timing. If you look at it from a very cosmic point of view, nothing happens. Everything happens for a reason. And synchronicity uh, says that things are related in time as well as in space. You see, the logic and the scientific method doesn't even consider timing. You know, so if you do a controlled experiment on Tuesday afternoon and you do that same controlled experiment on Sunday morning, you're going to get exactly the same result because timing and time have been taken out of the equation altogether. Mm-hmm. Whereas the ancient sages uh, from the East, from China and India, they thought that timing was the most important thing. You know, they were concerned with, you know, doing things in the right order, doing things at the right time, and not missing windows of opportunity. And so um, they were trying to answer a different question than what are things made of. They were trying to answer a question, what kinds of things go together in, t- uh, in time. So they saw that things are related in time. Uh, and that's the synchronicity principle. There are no accidents. So coincidences often have meaning. Maybe they always have meaning, but they often have significant meaning. Um, You know, it's sort of like you, a lot of times you hear about this in relationships, you know, about how people meet. And if they hadn't, if they hadn't missed that first train, they would have never met their beloved on the second train Mm -hmm. and stuff like Mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. And these things have like life changing uh, impacts. Um, So synchronicity is the definition of perfect timing. But Timing in the personal sense, it means, you know, answering the question, when should I make my next move? Not mm-hmm. what is the best next move, but once I figured out what might be the next best move, then I can think, well, when should I do it? And um, that is an intuitive decision. So that is by a way of being in sync with the moment. Now, people who are oh, – there's a lot of ways we make bad decisions, and I talk about this in the book – one of the ways we make bad decisions is being too emotional. We already talked about that earlier. In this mm-hmm. But another way that we make a bad decisions is by being overly analytical and overly reliant on logic. And a lot of times when we're overly analytical and we think that logic is going to give us the answer, we keep analyzing and analyzing, but we never have enough information. So we're waiting for more information and you end up missing the window of opportunity you end up uh, not even paying attention to the timing because um, you're procrastinating uh, in favor of waiting for more information. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I mean, it's like if you want to be a successful entrepreneur, you need to be about a year ahead of the market, not 10 years like me, although I was lucky because nobody else chased that idea. And 10 years later, I picked it up again. But you, need, you want to be a year, year and a half ahead of the market, not too far ahead. And you don't, certainly don't want to be behind. And so, you know, but if you're ahead of the market and you're going to make a bet on that, that is a timing issue. And that is an intuition issue for sure. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, like me, nobody, everybody thought I was crazy. 
all of my peers, I mean, I was a high tech executive and all of my peers in the industry who my friends, they thought, what the hell are you doing? There's no market for I Ching software and you're leaving a high paying career to go chase this ridiculous product idea. And they were right from a logical point of view. Mm -hmm. You know, I basically said, well, you know, maybe I am crazy is sort of like, but I'm just overcome with fascination and love for this fascinating, this intersection between two things that have fascinated me for 15 years, the I Ching and software. Mm -hmm. And so I said, I'm going to just, I got to go with this. You know, it's wherever God drags me, I will follow. And that was my motto. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. And at some point you have to make a decision, right? Yeah, I, so mean, I mean, you obviously didn't have the information that told you this was going to be a success. Oh, so, God. yeah. So you, you had to trust your intuition. You had to trust your, your sense of purpose, perhaps. Um, and, and just make a decision. Yeah. And in one sense, my timing was way off. My timing was not perfect. I, you could argue I was 10 years ahead of my time. Then later, when I sold the company in 2007, people would say, God, you really do have perfect timing. I mean, that was the perfect time to sell a company um, just before the crash of 2008. Mm -hmm. I said, yeah, well, you know, it is perfect timing now, but it didn't feel like it during the 13 years when I was starving. So, you know, you never – but then again, it was perfect because if I hadn't done it back then – I had to do it when I was inspired to do it. Right, right. And, had, and I had to learn all the hard lessons of seeing my company go bankrupt um, the first round and, um, you know, learning some hard lessons. You know, the first time around, I gave every all the employees stock. There weren't very many employees, but I gave everybody stock. And then I learned a lesson from that. You know, you should never give anybody – if you're doing a startup, a bootstrapping a startup like I did – um, it's a mistake to give people stock unless they ask for it. Mm. And, and then, and unless they are, you know, critical uh, to the mission, because if they don't ask for it, it becomes an entitlement and it just complicates your life. And it doesn't really do what you were hoping it would do, which is bring them in alignment with the vision. But if they are in alignment with the vision, they're going to ask for it. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's just kind of a side point. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm sure that'll click with somebody. <laughs> so let's let's get into belief engineering because uh, and how we choose our beliefs. Because I really, uh, I think the whole idea of beliefs, um, deep core beliefs that self sabotage us, our beliefs that I mean, our beliefs uh, engineer our our surroundings. I mean, what, what we see and the way we live is a product, what we feel, what we think is a product of our beliefs. Yeah, that's right. And so, you know, I have a whole chapter called belief engineering, as you mentioned. And basically what I'm recommending is that we should engineer our own beliefs. And it, basically what it comes down to is beliefs are, um, beliefs limit us and beliefs can empower us. Um, and they empower us in the sense that if you don't believe you can do something, guess what? You can't. Right. If you don't, if I don't believe I can walk across the room without stumbling and falling, I won't be able to do it. Um, but I never questioned that belief, but, um, there's a lot of, so, and then if I believe that I can't do something, guess what? You're right. So what you believe is very important, but it's not sacred. In other words, I make this distinction. It's like you're not saved 
by your beliefs as if there's some like perfect set of unchanging beliefs that you're supposed to adhere to like a fundamentalist religion. To me, that's absurd. You know, to me, sticking to a belief system that can never change and that is not subject to testing or upgrading, um, that is a learning disorder. Mm -hmm. I am like, I'm totally against totalitarian ideologies. Uh, and that includes religions that are belief centric, like Christianity and Islam, where if you doubt the, the articles of faith, that's the devil tempting you. This is a closed system and I am totally against it. Um, now, on the other hand, uh, the, I, that's why I'm, I, I like the Eastern philosophies like Buddhism and Taoism because they don't dictate what you should believe. Mm -hmm. In fact, they basically recommend that you test everything and that you learn to trust your intuition. That's what converted me. I went to Catholic school for 13 years, but I took a Buddhist meditation retreat when I was 30, and I heard the, the story of the Buddha saying, don't put your faith in teachers. Don't put your faith in scriptures. Don't put your faith in tradition. Don't even believe what I'm telling you right now unless it rings true for you in here. And he points to his heart. Mm -hmm. I thought, oh, my God, I've been told what to think, what to believe, what to feel and what to act, what how to behave my entire life. I've never been told you learn to trust yourself and let that be your ultimate criteria. And mm -hmm. I thought I, I basically had a conversion experience just from hearing that one talk. And I realized, oh, yes. And that sort of like opened me up to realizing, oh, you know what? Beliefs need to be upgraded. They Beliefs are provisional operating assumptions. I like that. Provisional operating assumptions. They're important and they're useful and you can leverage them, but you need to own them. You need to you need to uh, voluntarily endorse them rather than just believe things because you were taught to believe them or believe them because you were it was demanded that you believe them under the penalty of going to hell or anything like that. You know, you, we need to be adults and we need to, it's a choice. Beliefs are a decision. Beliefs should be a decision that adults make, not a decision that a three-year-old uh, makes on the basis of wanting to get along with his or her parents. Right. And, you know, and, and this whole idea that your beliefs should never change, that is ridiculous. That's not a mark of character. That's a, that's a mark of retardation. Well, of course, especially, I mean, even if you think now you're talking about the, the constrictions, um, of, of the beliefs of religion, but what about uh, a person who has been brought up in an abusive household and the kinds of beliefs that they form about relationships, about, um, how to treat each other and, and things like that? Those are all, um, badly skewed because of their, the, the way a person was brought up. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, I'll give you an example. Um, I have a mentally ill mother mm -hmm. who um, basically was a narcissist and who trained me to take care of her feelings um, above and beyond anything else. And what I learned, and I never realized this, and they call this a core belief. These are the beliefs that we that are based on conclusions we came to when we were two or three or four years old. Right. And, Very important time. Right. And so then we never know them because they're, they're virtually uh, un, a subcon unconscious or subconscious. Right. 
Right. And we can we can recover them in therapy. We can recover them in hypnosis and we can come to learn what they are. So I wasn't until I was 30 years old and I was in some kind of personal growth training that involved a lot of gestalt or and, mm -hmm. and I um I realized I had this core belief that I needed to be perfect in order to uh in order to get love. In other words, I had okay. to perform. I had to perform in order to earn love, and 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 only if I perform, if I performed close to perfect, I might get a few crumbs of love, and that was really the best I could do because my mother was not affectionate. She was not, you know, she was totally self-centered, and you know, just a really damaged person. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I feel sorry for her because I I can only imagine what she went through as one of thirteen children who never got her needs addressed or met. So, but in any case, in my life, I realized I had this belief, I have to be perfect in order to be lovable. And I realized, oh, fuck, that is, um, oh, pardon my French. No, that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> I said, I can't even uh, imagine what that's done to my life. You know, where I can't, I don't expect to be loved for being a human being. For I don't expect to be loved unless I'm doing something for you and I'm sacrificing something I would rather do for myself. Mm -hmm. And that was the way I ran my whole life. You know, I was trained to take care of my mother until I was like 12 or 13 years old, not to mention my younger brothers and sisters. And nobody ever cared about what I wanted or needed. Nobody mm -hmm. was a bit interested. And, um, you know, so that's an example of a core belief. And it was so liberating to get past that and to start loving myself and to start loving my inner child and to realize I am lovable just for who I am. And that was a belief that was running the program of who you are and that you didn't even, you didn't know, even know it was there. And I think yeah. that's how the majority of people uh, uh, conduct their lives. Yeah, well, that's true. We, most of us have these core beliefs that we're not even aware of. That's why I, in the belief engineering thing, the first step is to become aware of what you do believe. And I have a whole chapter. I mean, I have a whole section of that chapter that deals with these unconscious beliefs that you might or might not have. And there are ways to sort of like figure it out. You can reverse engineer, uh, you know, what, what, what must I be thinking? Yes. It's a very good chapter, by the way. And I recommend it to everyone to read. Oh. Thank you. Well, that's really what I do now. The Divination Foundation is about personal and cultural evolution, personal growth and cultural evolution. And so in terms of evolving the culture, I'm really encouraging people to develop their own belief system and, and have it be provisional. Let yourself test it. It's like the apps on your iPhone. You know, you got to upgrade your apps every once in a while. <laughs> yeah, that's a good, that's a very good analogy. So, you know, it's, 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 it's called learning. And it's also about flexible thinking. Right. I exactly. think that's really important is having a flexibility of thinking, being able to, uh, being able to say that this is what I believe right now. This is what I think right now. But that doesn't mean that as new information comes in, it won't change. It very well may change and it probably will change. Yeah, everybody is so, I mean, yeah, you're right. The, the big, I think the two biggest problems psychologically in society are closed-mindedness and self-righteousness. Mm -hmm. And they go together. Yes, they do. 
And we're seeing a lot of that these days. <laughs> yeah, and we're seeing a lot of that. And it kind of goes along with a degradation of education and a higher level of illiteracy and people sitting in front of TVs and just passively consuming information from Fox News, which, mm -hmm. I, call, which I call fake news. They're the <laughs> they are the original fake news. And, you know, 40% of America won't watch any other channel. I know the whole thing is so crazy. It's, it's such a, it's, it's so crazy. And I'm going to post something on my Facebook page. I think I'll put it on both by, it's a Dr. Gabor. It's something that Stephen had sent me. And he talks about, he's a psychiatrist or a psychologist who talks about the mindset that has created what we have today and how we've all created it. Every one of us has created what is going on today and how uh, people who are hurt and feeling disenfranchised have how they are seeing things. It's just, it's amazing. I think it really explains, it so accurately explains why we are where we are today. Um, well, you know, I see it uh, as, a, as ultimately a spiritual problem. Yes. Because it's all about the triumph of ego which is starts to feed on itself after a while and destroy itself. And that's what we're in. The, you know, Donald Trump is, is like the archetype of, uh, of, of, of a narcissistic ego out of control. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and, and I think that's the whole problem. Everybody is, is so uh, in love with their own image in their own mind and their own opinions as if what they think is so important. And, and, you know, everybody's just like performing. And, and we've become more isolated. You know, it's a performance-based culture. Facebook, for mo for so many people, is just an ongoing performance. And they're, they just want more attention. Um, and, and the same thing with a lot of the other social media. I'm not against social media. And I think Facebook's wonderful for family groups and has all kinds of good things. But I mean, we're out of control in terms of uh, our mentality is so egoistic and it's so self-centered and that's being glorified as the way to go donald trump the great businessman and you know i mean it's unbelievable i know how, uh, how self-absorbed I and mean, this is the age of narcissism well and look at look at um i was reading something about uh, teenagers and the um higher incidence of suicide and depression because they're so focused on getting likes and and their facebook page and snapchat and it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's just, you know, America is the extreme. America is, uh, has had the most extreme levels of mobility and also the highest levels of personal loneliness. People are so friggin' lonely and that's, and they're trying, and trying to sustain Meaningful relationships through social media is the evidence of that. There's, you know, they're, they're so estranged. And then even when they get together in person, they can't stop uh, tuning into their phones and seeing if they got some attention from this direction or that direction. You know, people are so lonely and uh, it's, it, it, it's, it's gotten to such an extreme. You know, I was just ha having breakfast this morning with somebody who had done a book about uh, the, uh, the, um, the national highway system, which was put in place in the fifties. Mm -hmm. And that's when they, they tore up all the trolley cars and things from cities and everybody's supposed to have a car and everything. And so now, you know, there's so much mobility that everybody is distant from 
you know, their, where their grandparents live, you know, there's so much isolation and it's, it's no wonder that people turn to social media. I mean, it's just part of the matrix, you know, mm-hmm. I'm not sure, I'm not sure it's making things any much better, but, um, in Europe, everybody knows where they're from. Everybody has a sense of, I mean, I'm, 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 exa- I'm generalizing, but right, right. people know what village their great grandparents came from. They, they know where they're, they, they have a much more grounded sense of identity. Now, I'm not talking about immigrants. I'm, I'm talking about, you know, this is my observation of the people I've met in Europe. I've been there many times. And, and over here, everybody is so uprooted, is so, you know, and there's some attempts at establishing community and overcoming that and communal living, and, but not, not, not enough, much. not enough. No, people are spending 12 hours, you know, a week on TV and they're spending another 12 hours a week on social media. You know, they're, they're not really relating in a personal way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I know. And I go into, into the town, into Nelson and, and I, we don't have cell service here where I live and people, that's the way people want it. So when I go into town and I see everybody uh, sitting at the cafe or, you know, in the restaurant or wherever, and everybody's got their nose in their freaking phone. I'm like, what is well, even that? When, even, even there, even in Nelson, huh? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, it, right. it, it's an endemic. It's everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Um, hopefully, we will figure that out and start having more self-control over our egocentric impulses. That sounds like a very good idea. So how about to wrap up, just taking kind of into consideration the little banter we've had back and forth here, um, how does your like your, your visionary decision-making and, and the, the belief engineering and intuitive intelligence, how, how can all of this, what do I want to say? Make it help to make things better, help to raise our consciousness, help to make us less lonely, help to bring us a new, uh, a, a new sense of our place in, in the world. Well, you know, I'm an apostle of decision-making as a, a lever of personal power. Okay. And that's what um, all of my work really kind of adds up to. That That's what the I Ching always meant to me, as it was a support for the proposition that I could make better decisions. And so I think we have to make better decisions. Now, that's going to involve um, letting go of stuff, you know, mm-hmm. and, so in just, what way? Well, like maybe letting go of uh, putting your phone on airplane mode, you know, when you go over to when you get together with somebody. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's like that's letting go of your connectivity. So you're making a sacrifice for the sake of a higher value. So, you know, I, I think, you know, we have to make better choices. We have to make better decisions in this real, you know, it's kind of a holistic problem. You know, we have we need to have better self-knowledge, which means. Uh, which includes knowing what we believe mm-hmm. and and then you know part of what we believe is what we value you know what we right. want and so then we need to rather than doing the easiest thing which is to be a passive consumer you know we regulate that so that's a decision that's a decision of how you spend your time where you invest your attention so we have all these choices all the time but we're not really we're not really making conscious decisions so my solution is to become more conscious about your decision making. 
Yes, and more conscious about the interconnectedness of all things and how those decisions that we make not only affect ourselves, but affect everything around us and maybe even affect other people in other countries based on the choices we make on what we buy. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, and and we're going to be forced to do this. You know, I mean, we can't keep burning fossil fuels like we are. Right. So, you know, when it becomes, it's probably, hopefully it won't be too late, but at some point, everybody's going to have to give up their gasoline engines um, or some semblance of that. You know, it's we're, we're looking at having to make some very hard choices as a result of being lazy and negligent for 200 years, you mm-hmm. know, during this petroleum bonanza. Well, and let's, let's not forget all of the products, the plastic products that yeah, yeah, yeah. we buy in volumes that are based on petroleum. Right. But at least in those cases, we're not burning it until, until later <laughs> when we dispose of it. Yeah. Right. I mean, we've had this petroleum bonanza going on since 1850 and it's changed everything. You know, it just basically, uh, the industrial uh, revolution went on to steroids. You know, after they stopped, when they started running out of whale oil and, you know, and then there was kerosene and then there was oil and petroleum. Um, I mean, that the population of the world has just gone out of control. The harm to the atmosphere is out of control. The, you know, but it's given us this standard of living, this comfort zone that's pretty, that people are pretty addicted to. You know, people will vote on the basis of what is the cost of a gallon of gas mm-hmm. rather than, rather than what is the cost of, you know, black lung disease. Or, right, you know, right. It's just amazing. So anyway, we have to make better decisions and we have to be ready to let go of things. And I think simplification is a good decision, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because uh, if uh, I don't know, you know, uh, we really have to start making better decisions. That's for sure. And you're right. And we have to have better self-knowledge, which includes the fact that we're all in this together. Right. And I think a good uh, good way to to wrap up is um, I know in your book you talk about a synchronistic lifestyle Mm. and and as that as being uh one of the ways to to move forward and to help to change things for the better how maybe just explain what a synchronistic lifestyle is and well the synchronistic lifestyle is when you are create when you have more balance in your life what happens in, in, in such that your intuition you have access to your intuition um what happens is one of the things that happens is you start to notice synchronicities more often. Mm-hmm. Synchronicities are happening all the time. In fact, you could say everything is synchronistic. Nothing happens that's not supposed to happen given the entire, you know, picture and all of the forces that, that come to bear on this moment. Right. And just because it's not what you want doesn't mean it's not synchronistic. Yeah. And even though, even if it's not something that you even recognize as being significant, Things are unfolding perfectly according to plan. We don't know the plan, and maybe there is no fixed plan. And it's not our job to know the plan. It's just our job to accept things. So that's a belief. You know, in the belief engineering chapter, I recommend a few provisional beliefs. And I'm saying, hey, try this out. This is a visionary belief. And try it and see if it doesn't work better for you. And one of them, uh, one of them has to do 
with uh, the idea that everything happens for a reason. Okay, so I uh, I can't prove that, but I can't disprove it either, mm-hmm. and I choose to believe it. So this is a this is a visionary belief that I adopt on a provisional basis just to see how it works for me. So you ask, what can people do, and what you know? This is what they can do: is they can start engineering their belief system to work better for them and produce better results. So by believing that everything happens for a reason or that there are no accidents, that helps me be more accepting. That helps me accept the way things are unfolding, whether I'm in control or whether I understand it even. You know, I can just make the assumption, hey, there's a good reason this is happening and there's no point me, you know, having panic attacks about it. Um, I don't understand why, but that's not my job. It's my job to roll with the punches and continue to make good decisions. Another uh, another belief that a uh, visionary belief that I recommend in that chapter is um, change is your friend. Mm-hmm. You know, so what is the I Ching? I Ching translates as book of changes. It's all about change management, which is all about making the right moves at the right time. The right moves yes. at the right time. That's that's the timing question. That's the what and the when. And so that's what change, the management of change is all about. So if we think of change as our friend and we believe in evolution, then we are. it's easier for us to adapt. If we believe that change is a threat and because we don't want to believe in evolution, like the right-wing people. Well, and so often people are afraid of change. Yeah, they're afraid of change, and so that's what I mean. They consider it a threat, and they're trying to keep things from changing, and that isn't helping at all. I mean, we need massive change. Yes, we do. But it scares people. So, you know, I mean, I would, you know, uh, start to develop uh, visionary beliefs that um, help you make better decisions and help you be more adaptable and and more light on your feet, and that's covered in the chapter of the book, uh, um, great decisions, perfect timing. By the way, the, if anybody's interested in the in the paperback, it's out now, and it's uh, the main, really the best place to get it is through Amazon. It's not in a lot of bookstores. Um, we published it ourselves, mm-hmm. and um, you know, so we don't have like the same kind of distribution uh, that a, a book that's published by a publishing house. But on the other hand. We have a lot more uh, freedom in terms of uh, of giving it away. You know, in fact, I would like to make a gift to your show and your listeners. If if anybody wanted to take wanted to look at the book or read the book in an electronic format, I have set up a web page um, where you can download it for iPad or Kindle or PDF uh, for free if you sign up for our newsletter. And I'm going to oh, get that's that. awesome. That's I'm awesome. Gonna, I'm going to tell you what that is right now, Janine, because it's very easy to remember, but people should probably write it down. I'll it's, put it on the website too. Okay. It's divination.com slash divination.com slash free book. Free. Oh, that's easy. Free book. Yeah, all, so divination.com slash free book. Right. And then that gives them, they can choose which format they want. Um, but that's, I can't give the paperback away, uh, for obvious reasons. And a lot of people and the paperback's beautiful. It's getting pretty good reviews on Amazon too. Oh, nice. Good. 
I can see why. Um, I've read most of it. And uh, even though for me, there isn't really much in it that's really new, I like the way you have explained and and fleshed out the information in, in new ways for me. So. Well, thank you very much. Oh, you're yeah. welcome. I mean, you know, the, the Jungian stuff in part one, where I define synchronicity and archetypes and the collective unconscious, those are things that you already knew, and a lot of people have a sense of it, but Carl Jung's writings, are he's very difficult to read. It was translated from the German. It's very, so I've, you know, I've been told that I did a really good job of explaining those concepts uh, in language that a layman can understand, and that was, mm-hmm. one, was one of my goals. Because oh. it's such important uh, uh, um, concepts. Jung is, was fantastic, and um, I'm really glad to see that his work is coming into the limelight. Mm-hmm. Well, it's really Thank been you. a pleasure. It's been such a pleasure being on your show. I really appreciate you doing the show in general for the sake of the common welfare, and I'm honored to be uh, one of your guests. Well, thank you very much. It was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed our chat. I enjoyed your information, and I hope our listeners get a lot out of it. So remember, once again, if you would like a free copy of Paul's book, divination.com slash free book. And the book is Great Decisions, Perfect Timing, and it's by Paul O'Brien. And thank you so much. Well, thank you, Janine, and uh, all the best to you and all of your listeners. Thank you. Take care. You too. Bye. Ciao. Thank you, Paul O'Brien, for a fun and insightful conversation. I'm particularly intrigued by the idea of cultivating intuitive intelligence because to cultivate something implies you have to put in time and energy. I've always felt the part of the equation for successful outcomes is in the timing, being in the flow, in intuitive knowingness of when to act and when to wait. And if you just don't know what to do, there probably isn't enough information yet. Sometimes using a divination system like the I Ching can add that extra bit of information to help you make a great decision in perfect timing. I'll also use muscle testing sometimes if I don't know what else to do. Check out Paul's Great Decisions Perfect Timing ebook. It's a generous gift from Paul to you in the hope that it can help you make decisions to create the life you desire. Thanks for listening to Keeping It Real with Janine, your guide to living an authentic, healthy life. This has been podcast episode 13 with Paul O'Brien. Go to the podcast website, www.realjanine.com to listen or download this episode and check out my other fascinating guests. You can also use iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. Please leave comments on the website if you are inspired. And Janine is J-A-N-E-A-N. Be well and take care.